I want you to think about this question. What memories come to your mind when you visit the place where you grew up? Just think about that for a moment. Uh, We had the opportunity a couple of summers ago to take my family to California, where I'm from. And I was able to show Lauren, my wife, who had never been, and the kids, my childhood home, an apartment that my mom and I lived in for 12 years on Bellflower Boulevard in Long Beach, California. And as we, maybe you had this experience, as we drove, it's been years since I've been back there, as we drove down that back alleyway, I was instantly taken back to being a kid, right? And I remembered my neighbor, Ronald, and how we would ride bikes in the neighborhood. Uh, I'd remember fireworks across the street in Lakewood because you couldn't do them in Long Beach on the 4th of July, even though sometimes we would bring them to Long Beach. I wasn't a good kid, but... uh, I remembered walking down the street to St. Timothy Lutheran School each day, right? I'm sure you can relate to to those kinds of memories. Location has a powerful ability to jumpstart those in our minds, doesn't it? And the the same is true not just with physically where you grew up, but, but also if you're on a spiritual journey, right? You remember those moments as well. I can remember the first time after having moved across the country walking into the the smelly basement of Calvary Chapel, Alpharetta, Georgia, where the youth group meeting was, and being taken aback by the kindness of these strangers that would later become my friends. I remember Dr. David Grubbs on the the last night of Sun Life Bible Camp, S-O-N Life, because Christians are goofy like that, right? I remember Dr. David Grubbs preaching about the cross, and I had heard about the cross many times before, but for some reason, at that moment, I started realizing that I was a sinner in need of that Savior, right? I remember where I was sitting. That was the year 2000, right? The places of our past are important to us, not only because they jog our memories, both good and bad. I only gave you the good ones. But because the events that happen in those times and places shape who we are today. Right? And so as we come to the end of John's gospel, where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves back home for the disciples in Galilee. And here where they first came to, to meet and understand and, and believe and follow Jesus, here again the resurrected Lord is going to show his disciples what it means to come to him. And so verse 1 gives us the setting, right? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Now we know in Matthew 28 that Jesus, Matthew 28.10, Jesus told Mary after the resurrection to go tell the disciples to, to meet Jesus in Galilee. They were supposed to go to Galilee and wait for him there. Now, why would Jesus tell the disciples to go to Galilee? We really don't know, but I believe it's because many important events happened with his disciples in Galilee. So as they would have went back there, they would have remembered that just a few years earlier, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount on this hillside. They they would have remembered the deliverance of the man possessed with demons on one side of the Sea of Galilee, Mark chapter 5. They they would have remembered the feeding of the 5,000, the one miracle that's in all four gospel accounts on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they certainly would have remembered that this was the place 
on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where three years earlier, Jesus called them to become fishers of men and follow him. Their memories would have been jogged to this. And so John tells us in verse 1, and he revealed himself in this way. So Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples here in a very particular way that is meant to teach them and us an important lesson. Okay, so there's nothing new here. The, the gospel of John is over, right? John 20 ends with a purpose statement. I've written these things that you may believe that he is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now it's done, but John is now giving us this epilogue. No new theology, no new teaching. It's simply a reminder. He's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us the simple and important lesson, and it's this. How to come to him. How to come to Jesus. Now you may think, wait a second. These guys have already come to Jesus, right? They're his disciples. Yes, they have. But isn't that part of our problem? That we treat coming to Jesus as that one thing you do at the beginning of the Christian life. And then you move on to bigger and better things like living holy lives and working for him. You see, Jesus is trying to show his disciples and us here that the Christian life is meant to be a perpetual, ongoing, coming to Jesus in faith. Why? Because you and I are perpetually needy, weak, broken people. Right? This is simple gospel. So, in a town on the shore where he taught his disciples and displayed his glory to them many times before, he lovingly and patiently does it again. And friends... It's, it's not just a lesson. It's an invitation for you and I to come to Jesus afresh. That's what this passage is. So as we walk through this text, we're going to see how to come to Jesus in three inseparable ways. Meaning these aren't three different ways to come to Jesus. You can't have one without the other. Here are those three things. Let me go ahead and give them to you. You come to Jesus empty-handed. Verses 2 through 5. You come to Jesus. You come into the fullness of Jesus. Verses 6 through 8. And then lastly, you come to the feast of Jesus. Verses 9 through 14. So let's jump in. Number one, come empty-handed to Jesus. Verse 2 says, Simon Peter called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, and two other disciples that we don't know were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we will go with you. So we're told that this in this instance, only seven disciples are present. And Peter, the spokesman leader that he's always been, says, all right, guys, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. Now, remember, this was their trade. Right? They were trained as fishermen before they met Jesus. And so this isn't, as some scholars have said, this isn't a sign that they've abandoned Jesus. Maybe you've read this before and heard, heard people explain it that way. They're, 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 they're done with Jesus. They kind of tried, especially Peter, because he's discouraged. So he's done with the disciple thing. Now he's going to go back to fishing. That's, that's not what's happening here. There may have been that temptation for Peter. After all, he just denied him. But remember, they've seen the resurrected Jesus. They've seen that Jesus wins. So instead, really what's happening here is they obediently go to Galilee, just like Jesus said. And they're waiting, and they don't know how long they're waiting, and they're fishermen, and so they're like, let's go fishing. So they, they want to eat, and in order to eat, you've got to work, so they say, let's go to work. So they go fishing, and then we read in verse 3, 
They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. John wants us to feel the weight of those last three words. These professional fishermen went out, fished all night, and they caught nothing. This was their lake. They knew this place better than anybody else. They had fished on it countless times. They knew all of the places to fish, and they fished all night, and they came up completely empty-handed. Do we have any fishermen in here? Anyone like to fish? Okay, me, my son back there. All right. I've gotten like really into fishing over the last year, and uh, especially with my oldest son, Hudson, I just, I love it, and, but here's the thing, when I go fishing, I go with one rod, pole, one line, and, and one hook, and one bait, right? You can only catch one fish at a time, and if you've ever been fishing, you, you know this, you're not exactly hauling them in, right? In fact, I, I don't catch fish more often than I do catch fish. It, it's actually been a, a sanctifying experience for me. If you want to learn patience, or if you want to know how impatient you are, take up fishing, right? So it's normal for me and my son to go and and maybe get a few bites, maybe get nothing, but still just enjoy the day. That's sports fishing. This is different. They weren't fishing for leisure. They were using nets. The, The goal wasn't to catch one fish at a time, but as many fish as possible. And so the idea of there being absolutely no fish over an entire night of them hauling in these nets is abnormal. In fact, I would say it's supernatural. It would have been one thing if they caught 10 or 15 fish. That would still be a weak catch, but they caught nothing. So it's early in the morning. They're tired. They're likely frustrated, maybe even hungry. And then we read in verse 4 and 5, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, think guys, he's saying, hey guys, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Now remember, if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, you know that these physical realities communicate spiritual truths, right? So what is being communicated here? See, Jesus, we'll see this in a moment, wants these seven disciples, and he wants you and I to recognize our spiritual poverty apart from him. Remember verse 1, this is the way that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. And he does it in such a way that shows them their emptiness. In this passage, Jesus uses fishing to teach them this, but remember, Jesus has already taught about this. In John chapter 15, he uses the imagery of a vine and its branches. And what does he say? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For, why? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not, it's, and it's not enough for them to know that they caught nothing. Jesus, who knows this? He's the king of the universe. He tells us, John tells us that Jesus asked them. He has them verbalize their emptiness. Verse 5. Hey guys, did you catch anything? Nope. Nothing. Friends, we are meant to recognize our empty-handedness before God. Do you, do you recognize that? Jesus loves his children so much that he puts them in situations where they're forced to come to the end of themselves 
Because that's the only place where he can begin to show us how much we need him. He can only fill up what is empty. So what kind of situations do we face in, in our lives that reveal our spiritual poverty? Well, maybe you're experiencing, experiencing a season of suffering, whether physically or, or mentally. You find yourself thinking repeatedly, I don't know what to do. I don't know when this is going to end. And you're brought to an end of yourself. Maybe you even used that phrase before, I'm at the end of my rope, right? Maybe it's loneliness. Loneliness was described before the actual pandemic as an American pandemic. Studies have shown that the, the loneliness isn't such an issue in America. There's actually physical effects on people. Now even more so. We can't be around people like we used to. We feel lonely. We feel isolated. Even when we're around others, we, we feel like we lack that genuine connection. And you think, I don't know what to do. And you're brought to the end of yourself. Or maybe, maybe you've been casting your nets in the pursuits of this world. And you've been trying to haul in all the joy and satisfaction you can from the pursuit of your career or money or sex or comfort or self-indulgence. And, and when the immediate high of those things wears off, which it always does, you're left feeling a deep sense of emptiness. You come to the end of yourself. Whatever it is, friends, whether it's relational, whether it's a season of waiting, whether it's unanswered prayers, strife, conviction of sin, we are meant in these moments to see that we are not sufficient. We're empty and in need of filling. Now, to be clear, in all of these instances, there are certainly practical things you need to do in those situations. I'm not saying the only answer to all of your problems is come to Jesus and everything will be made right. No, no, no. The point is that whatever the situation may be, Jesus wants you and I to see foundationally, first and foremost, that apart from him, you can do nothing of eternal and significant value. And he's showing his disciples this again. So we have to ask ourselves, we have to hear Jesus ask us this morning, have you caught anything in the nets of your own self-sufficiency? Or are you willing to come to him in all honesty and brokenness and empty-handedness and say, no, Jesus, no, I've got nothing. I need you. The reality is it's both exhausting and painful to hit rock bottom and realize that, isn't it? But that's the place where God begins to work. That's the place where, where Jesus begins to fill us up with himself. Joel Beakey comments on this. He says, the disciples know was like sweet music to Jesus' ears. Why? Because he likes his people miserable? Of course not but because he likes to surprise them with his fullness and their emptiness. That's number one. Come to Jesus empty-handed. And that leads us to number two. Come into the fullness of Jesus. And here we're meant to see that Jesus alone can bring that fulfillment and satisfaction. So we read in the first part of verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, Jesus is on the shore. He's speaking to them about 100 yards off, we read. And we're told they don't recognize that it's Jesus yet. So why would they listen to him? Well, maybe they think it's a fellow experienced fisherman. We don't know. Maybe they just are totally desperate and they think, what do we have to lose to, to try from this crazy guy trying to tell us to do stuff? So they, they cast the net on the other side. Verse 6 goes on to tell us. 
And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So in an instant, after a long evening of striving and toiling and coming up empty-handed, they have nothing to show for it. In an instant, the nets are full. And what happens? What makes the difference? It's Jesus, isn't it? All of the combined skill of the professional fishermen, the knowledge of all the best fishing holes in the Sea of Galilee, yielded nothing. Only Jesus could fill their nets. And he doesn't just give them some fish. He fills the nets to the brim, right? There are two lessons here. And, and one is for our souls, and the, the other one is, is big picture for the church. First, is clear. Only Jesus can fill you up. This has been a constant theme in the Gospel of John. I'd submit to you it's the, the whole theme of the entire Gospel. This chapter is an epilogue, right? A section that comes at the end of a literary work to sort of provide closing comments, tie up loose ends. But remember, John also wrote a prologue. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And he says there, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says this about Jesus. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Let's consider what else we've seen in John. The first miracle, the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. Verse John 2, verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. John 4, 14, the water that I will give you will become, will give him, will come in him a spring of living water welling up. John 6, 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants fullness for his people. Or here's another text from the Apostle Paul, Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Then look at verse 10, and you, Christian, have been filled in him. I remember one day years ago we were enjoying... Uh, a time in the backyard with, with the kids, and one of my daughters was maybe two years old at the time, and it was summer, and she had a bucket, and she was going over to the hose, filling it up with water, and then carrying it over to another bucket and dumping it in. There was only one problem. There was a crack in the bottom of the bucket. So she'd fill it up, I mean, to the brim, and she'd walk over, and it, not knowing, the water's just dumping out, she'd get over to the other bucket and go like this, and it'd be totally empty. Right, And she looked down, go, and of course, you might think this is cruel, I just thought it was adorable. Because it was so cute, I let it happen like five or six times, you know. Then I go show her, listen, this, it's not going to hold any water because there's, there's a, a crack in it. And she was two, she's like, I have no idea what's going on, right? But friends, just as a broken bucket always ends up empty, so all of our efforts to find fullness and satisfaction in anything but Jesus will leave us empty. That's the message of this passage. That's the message of John. Friends, that's the message of the entire gospel. Only Jesus can fill you up. But there's a second, bigger picture message here for the church. And it's simply this. Jesus will build his church. In Matthew 4 and Luke 5, we're told of an earlier event at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry where he calls the disciples where Jesus does nearly the exact same thing. There's a night of endless fishing. They come up empty-handed. Jesus tells them to cast the nets on the other side, fills the nets to the brim. 
And in Matthew's account, that's where Jesus tells the disciples, I will make you fishers of men. Now here we are. Jesus has accomplished the work of salvation. He's going to ascend to the Father. The Holy Spirit soon, the book of Acts, is going to fill these fishermen at Pentecost. Peter will preach his first sermon and more than 3,000 people are converted. They're caught in the net in an instant. And from that day to today, what has Jesus been doing? He's been building his church through faithful, obedient, fulfilled disciples like you and me who cast the net of the gospel. They would have remembered that moment when Jesus says, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I will build the church just like I filled these nets. And the lesson is simple. Friends, when we come into the fullness of Jesus, we then want to naturally go out and tell others how they can get in on this, right? We cast the net far and wide, and we trust that Jesus is going to draw them in. In short, fulfilled people are missional people. Then we read on in verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. I love this because last week, do you remember, John made sure we knew that he outran Peter to the tomb. You remember that? He's like, you know, Peter, I'm faster than him. Now he's like, I'm also mentally faster than Peter as well. Because he's like, I'm the one who recognized that it was Jesus on the shore. And whatever happened, maybe the miracle reminded them of that first one in Matthew 4 and Luke 5. It triggered something. Maybe there was a spiritual blindness that the Holy Spirit just opened up. They realize it's Jesus. And what does he say? He says, it is the Lord. But it's more than just a, fa- a statement of fact, isn't it? Right? It's a, a spiritual statement as well. Who filled the nets? It is the Lord. Who fills us up when we're empty and come to the end of ourselves? It is the Lord. I love what one pastor and theologian, A.W. Pink, says about this. He says, And what a lesson is here again for the Lord's servants. When he grants success to our labors, when the gospel net in our hands gathers fish, let us not forget to own, it is the Lord. And to how much more and many should this principle be applied? As we admire the beauties of nature, as we observe the orderliness of her laws, as we receive countless mercies and blessings every day, let us say, it is the Lord. So too, when our plans go awry, when disappointment, affliction, persecution comes our way, still let us own, it is the Lord. It is not blind chance which rules our lives, but the one who died for us on the cross. Friends, it is the Lord. And then notice what Peter does when he realizes it's Jesus. Verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now, when this similar event happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, In Luke chapter 5, we see a completely different response from Peter. In fact, Jesus fills the nets to the brim, and then here's what Peter says, Luke 5, 8. Listen to what he says. He says, depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. 
So in Luke 5, Peter was so ashamed by his lack of faith and sinfulness and emptiness that he wanted to be away from Jesus. He says, depart from me. But in John 21, Peter, nearly naked, mind you, he takes this outer garment, which was very thin, and he essentially, what he's doing here is wrapping it around himself, jumps in the water, and runs, swims and runs to Jesus. So, so what's the difference between three years earlier and now? Nearly the same event. Was Peter any less of a sinner than he was a few years earlier? No, in fact, and we'll see this next week, I would say Peter was far more aware of his sinfulness. He just denied the king of the universe. So why run to Jesus? Friends, this is a testimony to God's work and growth in the life of Peter. He was once ashamed to be in the presence of Jesus as a sinner, so he says, depart from me. Now, three years later, he knows that one, Jesus, is the only one who can properly deal with my sin. So instead of hiding myself from him, I'm going to run towards him full speed. Friends, one of the surest signs that you understand the gospel, that you are growing in holiness, that you know the fullness of Jesus, is how quickly you run to him when you fall. So Peter runs to him. I've been a Christian for around 20 years. Some of you have been a lot less. Some of you a lot longer. And I am always discovering new ways in which I am empty and in need of Jesus. I'm far more aware of my sinfulness today than when I first believed 20 years ago. And friends, that's the work of God's grace in our lives. Not that we need Jesus less, but that we recognize we need him more. And so we don't hesitate to run to him. And that leads us to number three, come to the feast. So are you with me? Come empty-handed, come into the fullness of Jesus, and then lastly, come to the feast. And this is where we have to answer this invitation into loving relationship. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal, charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I just want you to let that sink in for a moment. The king of the universe, the eternal son of God, is on a shore cooking breakfast for these fishermen. Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So as they come to the shore, Jesus invites them to a meal that he's prepared. Just, just as he's served them for his entire ministry, he's still serving his disciples. Now remember, Jesus could have provided all their needs from a distance. He could have snapped his fingers, you know, and there could have been, you know, fried fish and chips right on board of the ship. He didn't didn't need to to do this. So why does he invite them in? Well, friends, he wants relationship with his people. He wants to be with them. He wants to be with you and me as well. This is how Jesus conducted much of his ministry. This is the theme of the Gospel of Luke. 
He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He loved meals because meals were a time to sit down, to, to sit still, to sit face to face with others and talk, hear stories, laugh, cry together. So what did he, he do? He ministered around meals. He dined with sinners. He discipled his disciples. He shared the gospel. He offended the self-righteous religious leaders all around a meal. In a moment, this is we do every week, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, a meal instituted by who? By Jesus. It's where we remember and, and in faith partake of the fullness of Jesus, the body and blood represented by the bread and the cup. He gave this meal to his church while sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. What was the Passover meal? A meal that commemorated God sparing and delivering his people Israel out of Egypt. Why did he deliver them? Because he wants to be with his people. He wants to be present with his people. This meal theme is all throughout the Bible. We see, we see it in books like Isaiah, chapter 25. Verse 6 looks, looks forward to this meal at the end of the age. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, and well-refined. Verse 9, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This meal represents relationship between God and man. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We've heard that verse. I'm sure you've heard it before. Calling sinners to repentance. It's a great evangelism verse. But listen to, to the next part. He says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and do what? And eat with him and he with me. I will share a meal with them. This is Jesus inviting us into relationship with himself. Nancy Guthrie just wrote a book called God Does His Best Work With Empty. I can't commend it highly enough to you on this topic. Walks through the whole entire Bible and looks at the theme of emptiness and fulfillment. But listen to what she says here. We're discovering that Jesus is not someone we use to get a feast that's to our liking. Rather, Jesus is the feast. As you feed on his obedient life, you'll lose your appetite for perfection and performance. As you feed on his sacrificial death, you'll be able to enjoy drawing close to God rather than living in fear of being under the judgment of God. And as you feed on his victorious resurrection, anchoring your hopes in the resurrection body that will be given to you, the heavenly inheritance that will be granted to you, and the eternal life that will be extended to you one day, you'll find that you stop expecting that this world could ever fill you up with its limited offerings. Friends, stop looking elsewhere and come to the feast. So practically, what does that look like? What does it mean to come to the feast? How do we answer Jesus' invitation to enter into relationship with him? Well, Jesus said it when he began preaching. He said something very simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent is like a cringe word in our culture, but it's a Bible word and it's a Jesus word. So we use it. What does that mean? It means to turn from all of the empty nets of this world, to turn from our sin and self-rule, 
to Christ, the one who gave his life for us, defeated sin and death on the cross in the empty grave, and believe in him. Repent and believe the gospel, and you will have life. You'll enter into relationship with Christ. And friends, I'm not just saying, hear me on this. If you're here and you're exploring the gospel, can I just plead with you, as the Apostle Paul says? He says, I implore you on behalf of God to be reconciled to him. I would plead with you to consider what's being offered to you here and believe the gospel. But also, for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for so long, don't write this off and say, that's for new Christians. Are you coming to Jesus in repentance and faith afresh daily, recognizing your need of him? We are to walk in continual repentance. So that's, that's what that means practically. And then, secondly, we spend the rest of our lives running to him. We pursue him by grace. We, we feast on his word in the scriptures. I pray this isn't the only time you're soaking on this, uh, in the scriptures each week. We should be self-feeders of this. This is how we fill ourselves with Jesus. Bathing our lives in prayer. And friends, we don't do this on a, a, alone. We do this as God's people, the church. That's how we answer the invitation. We repent and believe and spend the rest of our lives running to him. Church, as we close, only Jesus can fill us up. A simple message, but an important message that we need over and over again. And I would submit to you, it's not only the passage, the point of this passage, it's the point of the entire Gospel of John. Let's reflect for a moment. John chapter 2, where there's no wine for wedding guests, Jesus provides the best wine to the fullest. John chapter 4, where there's no living water for the Samaritan woman, Jesus provides it to the fullest. John 4 and 5, where there's no healing for the official's son and the paralyzed man, Jesus provides it to the fullest. Where there's no bread for crowds in John 6, Jesus provides it to the fullest. Where there's no sight for the man born blind in John 9, Jesus provides it to the fullest. Where there's no life for his dead friend Lazarus, what does he do? He raises him. He gives him life to the fullest. When there's no comfort for weeping Mary and the disciples after the the death of Jesus, Jesus provides proof of his resurrection for the fullest. And here in John 21, where there's no fish for these weary disciples, he provides it to the fullest. Friends, for you and I, Where there is emptiness, Jesus provides his fullness. May we come into that fullness in faith. May we answer the invitation to the feast. Let's pray together.